Well, my friends, this is going to be so interesting. It's a Friday morning, and Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev is coming over to the back house. Rabbi Nahum wrote a book called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets, and this book is a stunner. So, by the way, welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 241, and I'm going to be meeting Rabbi Nahum, and then I'm, I have so many questions. I have questions about his book, but I also, there's this buoyant, fearless, uh, sort of explosively joyous uh, human being in the pages. Do you know what I mean? You know when you read something, and it's not just a thing happening on the page, but you can f- sense and feel the person who, who wrote these words. So um, I have questions about his book, but I have questions about his life. And he's coming over to the back house, and I'm going to meet him, and then we're going to see where it goes. <laughs> I love it. By the way, I'm going to ask him all the questions I'd ask him whether this is recorded or not, obviously, Um, because my own sense of curiosity on this one is peaked, to say the least. So he's going to be here shortly. Um, Before before he gets here, uh, a couple new things. I love to talk about the art and science of communicating, like how, how you take an idea and give it shape and form, uh, or, or how when something's sort of in you, it's burning within you, but you maybe don't even know what it is, but how do you get it out and get it clear and compelling um, so that maybe others can see what you've seen or see something even beyond that? So, um, because I love this so much, I'm doing two uh, upcoming two-day events, one in August, one in October, for people who are communicating something, whatever, whatever sort of form you're in. And um, a couple years ago, I released something called Something to Say, which was seven hours of audio of me talking about the art and science of communicating. Um, So in some ways, these events are part two or a continuation. In another sense, they're taking those ideas and then then working them out in real time. So I'm going to be doing all this new teaching on how communication sort of works, and then I'm going to be um, telling all these new stories I haven't told before, and then sort of pulling them apart and giving you tools, um, techniques for how to get at whatever it is that you are uh, working to communicate. And then um, the real joy is when somebody's working on something and they're stuck, Um, whether it's a specific project or whether for some people part of their work, their role, their position, whatever, is to make new things. And sometimes it feels like the well just keeps running dry. So the the real joy for me is when somebody's stuck and they get unstuck. And, oh, that is the best. So um, this these workshops coming up later this year, they're, uh, yeah, I've designed them. Hopefully they're going to be so focused and purposeful that wherever you are, from brand new to the art of communicating to you've been doing this for a long time, um, you have an experience. You get what you need, and things just go to a whole new place. So anyway, those are called the uh, Something to Say workshops, and we just tickets just went up for those. And then uh, May 14th, 
at Largo, I'm doing a new show called Son of a Judge. And, uh, man, I got some solid butterflies, some very active butterflies on this one. I'm going to um, do something I haven't done before, and we'll see if it works. But that doesn't even matter because we're trying it, and that's the joy. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, and then tour. The summer dates are now all up. So um, Fresno, Santa Barbara, coming your way very soon. Then Louisville, Chattanooga, and... Um, Knoxville, and then Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco, that's in July, and then August is UK tour. Um, I love going to the UK, which is Bristol, London, Manchester, and then I'm doing a three-night run at the New Theatre in Edinburgh, Scotland. So uh, those are a few things coming up, but right now, Rabbi Nahum is about to walk in the back house and we're about to <laughs> you and I are about to have an experience so here we go it's just so great to after reading this book i i had questions about the book but i had so many more questions about you hmm. you've been a rabbi since the early 80s yes 1981 there's a there's a buoyancy a joy, uh, a wonder and awe that is like just below the s surface of all these pages. Is that your, have you always been that way? Um, are you getting younger as you're getting older? <laughs> oh, what, what is your secret sauce? <laughs> what a wonderful thing to say. I love it. What a wonderful thing to say. You know, um, when sometimes my students say what they most appreciate i think oh my god it's the wisdom that i've brought to them or it's i've created a sacred space that we can all feel comfortable in and all really go into a deep place often it's you are so boyishly joyous about this teaching yeah. we love being in its presence yeah that, that's the feedback that i i get if yeah. i would have come to your congregation in the early 80s and heard you was that the, there then? Gosh, Ron. That sense of sort of, um, you're, I can feel you smiling in the pages. Yeah. And you're talking about oppression and empire. You're talking about uh, entrenched systems that hold people down. And yet there's a hope. There's this vitality humming through the thing. Would I have picked that up years ago? Is that new? Is that just how you've always seen it? There's like six questions in that one question. Yeah. You know, Rob, the, the, the book is about the prophetic stream. It's about this energy that God has infused in all of life. And by God, I don't mean some old man in the sky, but the, the, the center of creation is infused in all of life. And I feel as I've gotten older, I, I'm connecting more fully to that stream. I just feel that stream you know, in my life and in my day and... You know, where I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, it's just this high desert and big sky and mountains, and I just feel that energy coursing through the world. And so I feel like I'm just, I'm just participating in, in what's here and what, what's holding, what's buoyant, buoyant for me. Yeah. This, um, I was thinking, the book is called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets. Then and Now. Then and now. Yeah. Is then and now the subtitle? Yeah. 
the liberating path of the Hebrew prophets. Um, for many people, especially in our modern world, prophets um, can carry with it like predictions about the end of the world or, you know, telling the future. Can you, for people who are like, wait, what do you mean by prophet? Um, can you give, I mean, you give a number of ways of thinking about the prophets, but how do you, to the person who's like, you mean prophets like that, like Y2K kind of thing? How do you, how do you define prophets? Because some of your definitions here are just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think people often think about prophets as this angry old men shaking their finger in accusation about how bad people are. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a, a misread. I think in some ways that's an imperial lens on a subversive yes. text. You know, and these prophets were actually people who are so imbued with God's love for creation that anything that limited the flourishing of life, of people and of life itself, was intolerable to them. It was so inconsistent with God's love flowing in creation. So these were, were uh, people who saw the world through those eyes of love, and therefore anything that obstructed flourishing was to be brought down. And, and, and so rather than foretelling the future, what the prophets were about was saying, what looks so solid and substantial now, it's going to be forever, if it's oppressive, is indeed coming down. And then they had the, it's so filled with God's love that they had to be able to transcend the brokenness of this moment and to foresee and articulate an alternative future. So it's not predicting the future, it was envisioning a possible alternative future that offered radically new and potential opportunities for more widespread human flourishing. I'll often, when people will talk about the Bible, like, oh, you know the Bible, like, well, hold on, hold on. Do you realize that there are like these 15 prophets? Yes. They're tucked in the Hebrew scriptures. And they're so radical and imaginative and bold. And pretty much every idea of the moment about social justice or equality or human flourishing or care for the earth or a widening gap between rich and poor, in some ways you can trace all that, all those leaves and branches Yes. To these original voices yes. that are sort of in the in the Western the the water of Western culture, but they actually come from this specific Hebrew prophetic tradition. Yes, yes, which a lot of people just haven't heard. Yeah, and and that's really why I turned to the prophets. You know, about ten years ago, I, I I've been actually privileged for many years to lead a, a Beit Midrash, which is a really deep spiritual learning Beit House. Yes, Midrash. Uh, how do you define exploration? Exploration. House of exploration. It's a traditional rabbinic term for a, a learning community. A learning community is a house of exploration. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for me, it's, it's about the adventure of it, right? Yeah. 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 And so um, about 10 years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm leading this learning community, and every spring we would talk about what are we going to study the next fall. It, it meets from September through June. And about 10 years ago, I said, you know, we are living in prophetic times. You know, that these prophets live in times when the major institutions of the day, the, the temple and the kingship, were not serving the needs of the people. And in fact, the small farmer, the backbone of Israelite society, was being uh, generation after generation increasingly dispossessed of their land. You know, harsh debtor laws and heavy taxes and, and all that. And the, the prophet said that this is a, an existential crisis for Israel, that Israel had come into existence to embody an alternative to imperial power, and now we're becoming a little imperial power with the same 
The you same know, hierarchies, same, same hierarchy, gap, structures of injustice. Exactly, and gaps between the rich and the poor. And so the prophet said, this is not sustainable, this is coming down. And I felt like we're living in times like that. We're living in times when the major social and political and economic decisions are just really not serving the needs of, uh, of the, the people. And you know, these institutions look like they're inevitable and insurmountable and immutable. Uh, and so we need people like the prophets to say, no, 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 this is not serving the flourishing of humankind over the earth. And so it's not sustainable. It's coming down. And we need people who can transcend that to envision an alternative future. So I, I turned to those prophets in my study group to find hope and, and vision and, and courage to face our, our contemporary problems. And just like you said, we found in those ancient prophets so many themes and insights and understanding that s speak directly to today. Yeah. Um, I love how you talk about, for the many people, and the sort of question that hangs in the air right now for so many people is, is it getting worse? How are we ever going to make progress? There are these, whether it's political, economic, there are these structures that just are designed to put all the wealth in the hands of a few that are hoping. But you point out, which the prophets point out, that those systems aren't sustainable and actually collapse eventually in on themselves. Yes. That yes. they appear strong and entrenched and impermeable. Yes. But they're actually houses of cards in many ways. That's right. You know, if you made a graph of the rise and the fall of all of the empires throughout history, the rise is largely gradual over many centuries, and a fall is precipitous. Mm. And so, th so something that's been around for oh, centuries looks like it's going to be around for centuries. But in history, that's not the way it is. These, these empires come down in, in, in a generation or two. Yeah. So you even think about the uh, in the U.S. right now, or like in England uh, or in Argentina, you think about the countries right now are like, what is happening? How is, and the pro one of the things that's spoken to me over the years, the prophets are like, hold on, hold on, do not attach your sense of where the world is headed to this moment. Yes, because what we know is this thing could radically change tomorrow. Yes, that's what we know from history. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, in my work, I've been really influenced by the work of uh, the great scholar Walter Brueggemann. Absolutely. Yes. Don't we all love Walter? Shout what, out to Walter Brueggemann. Big shout out. Can I tell to you a Walter, Walter Brueggemann story? <laughs> Please. Okay. Uh, years ago in another life, I was pastor of a church, and one, we'd always wanted to have him come speak. And by the way, if you're listening, just probably start with Walter Brueggemann's book, Prophetic Imagination. That's probably a place to start. Would mm -hmm. you agree? Yeah, just, just stop right now buy that book, and then come back to our discussion. <laughs> and so Walter Ruggeman had has just lived large in my imagination for years. He eventually, like a decade later, agrees to come speak at the church I started. And um, it's a big room where the people would meet. And so I show up, and everybody's already started singing, so it's like thousands of people singing at the top of their <laughs> lungs. And I used to, before I would give sermons, hang out in the storage closet. So when somebody would come to be a guest speaker, they would generally be ushered into this storage closet to <laughs> just sort of get a <laughs> drink of water and catch your breath. So I got to meet Walter Brueggemann in the storage closet, and I meet him, and right outside the closet, thousands of people are singing, and it's just... Walter Brueggemann's in the house, and it's electric, and I say, hi, 
I'm Rob. It's so nice to meet you. And he says, and he points to all the people and he says to me, what a wondrous thing the Lord hath wrought. <laughs> you know, I can hear Walter in this Midwestern <laughs> accent saying that exactly. What a wondrous yeah. thing the Lord hath wrought. <laughs> it's like, people say, like, be careful about meeting your heroes. Yes. But in that case, it was like, no, yes. he delivered yes. his opening line. It was yes. like Shakespearean. Yes. And it's beautiful power and beautiful. gravitas. <laughs> Okay, anyway, go on. I'll, so. tell you, I'll tell you my little Walter story. <laughs> he, he honored us. He came to our synagogue, my synagogue, and, and, and spoke. And in that synagogue, um, maybe eight years ago, he said, um, neoliberal global capitalism is doomed. <sighs> he also said, we are liable, maybe not even liable, we are heading towards fascism. How many years ago? Yeah, see, yeah. that's just, yeah. that's it. That's on it right there. Yeah, yeah. So I was really influenced by Walter in, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination. He makes a distinction between the prophetic narrative and the royal narrative. This yes, goes back, this goes back huge. To, this goes back to what you were saying about the um, empire and time. And so in Walter's understanding, the imperial view is the eternal now. There's only... There's no alternative from now. It's kind of a very narrow picture of, of time. There's only now. There's no alternative to the present. You know, you know. Like, like the, the rule says, "Aprima la deluge." There's no alternative. It's only chaos. Chaos is the only alternative to the present order. There's no alternative. No way out. And so the way that the empire keeps its power and control is: you need me, us, this, because without it, everything falls apart. Totally. That's it. You vote this way build this wall, organize this, fund this, say yes to this, salute this, submit to this. That's right. Because your only other option is the abyss. Right. And out of sheer terror, reptilian, lizard brain, whatever it is, right. people go, okay. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the prophetic narrative is a broad narrative. You know, what the prophets did is they came in and they said, Actually, this temple is kind of a recent development. Let's really talk about what the, our journey with God is. Actually, it goes all the way back to this dude Abraham, you know, who generations, centuries ago began our journey. And actually, it goes back even further than that. It goes back to the creation, the creation of the world. The creation story, yeah. And the prophets line up the creation, Abraham, and the exodus from Egypt as this is one long liberation journey. Know, towards more mutuality, towards more conscious, mutual, loving relationship. You know, so they vastly expand the, the, the time focus and say, these institutions, they're here today, but they were gone. They weren't here yesterday, and they'll be gone, be gone tomorrow. Oh, you think about how many, well, family systems, how many, I mean, it happens in business, that happens in religious communities where it's like there's a list of things that can't be talked about. These these are the acceptable things yes. to discuss yes. and uh, say. Yes. But over here, no. Yes. These things are off limits. Yes. And that what the pragmatic imagination does, we can talk about this. We can talk about this. We yes. can ask this question. Even yes. even <coughs> settings where there's a list of questions that aren't allowed to be asked. Everybody's just agreed. We don't ask that because that could disrupt the yes. thing. So yes. the power structure is actually very fragile if it can't handle just some basic questions. That's right. And the prophetic imagination, which I love how you do this in the book again and again, says, yeah, 
We can point that out. We can talk about that. We can move over here. Yes. We can move over there. Yes. We have lots of room to move here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the prophets are deeply rooted in the sense that the world is actually a conversation. <clears throat> you know, and it, it, there's a, the rabbis pick this up, up too, that, that cre- I mean, you know, in the beginning of creation, it's call and response. God says, you know, let there be, and the world responds. I mean, why in the creation story is God talking, you know, not just doing? Why doesn't God just do this stuff? God says, let there be light, you know, let there be a, a firmament in the heavens, you know, let the, the, the waters come together and the dry land appear, you know, and, and, then, and then it says, and then there was. And it's this, it's this relational thing. You know, God says, let the waters swarm forth with fish. You know? And then the, the waters swarm forth with fish. And then what's fantastic is God is delighted, which is, also, which is just to say, God didn't say, oh, this is exactly how it's going to be. God empowered the waters to bring forth what they could bring forth to release their potential. And when they did, God said, whoa, that's cool. So it's this conversation that God is having with creation. God's talking, creation is, is responding. And the prophets pick that up. You know? And so in the prophets, the whole role of listening and responding is crucial. You know? in, in some translations, and um, in the prophets and in Deuteronomy, the word to listen gets translated as to obey. To obey, right. There's an intensive form of the Hebrew verb, which means to diligently listen, not to casually listen, but to bring your full mind to listening. And that's often translated as obey, which is a, a, a mistranslation. It's a sense of listening and then responding, this sort of two-part, back-and-forth process that is at, at the heart of of, of <laughs> By the way, I, I, I can just picture people right now, you're just blowing minds for the number of people who their their spiritual consciousness was shaped by this, there's basically like a, a grumpy parent who needs you to obey. Yes. You know all those places where you're told to obey. Yes. But the, actually the tradition is the listening of a dialogue um, is a very different, is a completely different kind of posture. Yes, yes. It's much more dynamic, much more what's being said. Um, what's this calling out of me? I love how you point out that the mitzvot, which are often understood as commands, mm-hmm. is better understood as charges. Yes. Like you charge somebody with something. Yes. Which is, has like this noble, sacred sense of dignity and responsibility. Yes, exactly. Which is very better, different than somebody saying, go do this. Yeah, we need to ask ourselves, is God interested in automatons who simply narrowly obey commandments? Or is God interested in the flourishing and the development of, of, of life in terms of integrity and relationship and responsibility? You know, does, does God want blind obedience? Does God want heartfelt devotion? You know, I think we read the Hebrew Scriptures, honestly, this God uh, wants the flourishing of humankind, of all of life, and it's devotion that brings forth life and, and not some sort of um, blind, automatic mm-hmm. uh, obedience. I think also um, the name of God is often the, the Hebrew letters Yud and He and Vav and He. This is the next thing I was going to ask you about. Go ahead. No, ask, go. Ask. Go. Because <laughs> this part, I, uh, what you did was so simple and yet complex and profound, how you, how you name God. Yes. Because there's this ancient... Tetragrammaton? Yes. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Yes. 
which often gets translated Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals. Yes, yes. But you translate it differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's really important that in the Hebrew Bible, we, I mean, in, in the tradition, we don't know the name of God. I mean, yud heh vav is not God, it's God's name. It's like Rob and Nachum and God. You know? <laughs> it's like God's name. You know, and, and in the Hebrew tradition, you understand in the ancient world, to know someone's name is to know their essence. Like, I know you're Rob. I mean, it's not just your, your label. It's like I know something deeply about you. That somehow mm-hmm. I, I, I get you, you know, and you get Nachum kind of thing. By the way, when I grew up, um, you know how we, in that book in the Bible, Nahum. <laughs> I even in doing the intro for this podcast, Nahum, and then you step in the back house, and within thirty seconds, Nahum. Just yeah. so, so better, so much better. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, names, names are important, Abs- and the pronunciation even. The pronunciation uh, brings me cl- even my mispronunciation and your beautiful ancient pronunciation draws me to you. Yes, yes, right. So in the tradition, we don't actually know, can't pronounce God's name, because that's just to say we, we have our mind around God, we know what God is in his depth, and, you know, it's like, well, no, no, God is of dimensions well beyond what the human mind can, you know, we, we can't really grasp God. We can be in devotion and intimate relationship to God, but we can't get our minds around God, hardly. And so the way that's expressed is, well, we, we don't actually name God. We, we don't know God's name. That's at least in, in the Jewish tradition. So <clears throat> the rabbis took those four letters and said what we're going to pronounce them, yud heh is Adonai, which is my Lord, which is a whole different yeah. letters and pronunciation. And it meant a lot to the rabbi. What, what they were basically saying, they were living under the domination of Caesar. They were saying, no, no, you're not the guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you think you're the guy, <laughs> but you're not the guy. We're, 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 this is the Lord. This is the one. I mean, in that world to say, our God is the real Lord. Caesar thinks he's got all the power, but actually he's small potatoes. It's the Lord that we're in relationship to. That meant a lot <clears throat> to the rabbis. And so they said, Adonai means my Lord. Interesting how that naming also is so shaped by the particular culture, That's right. politics, and constructs of that day. That's right. So to absolutize <clears throat> it for all time might be helpful, but for later groups or other spaces, the, that framework doesn't have any resonance or anything. Yes, yes. So, but you, okay, keep going, because you're yes. going somewhere fantastic with this. Yeah. So actually, uh, uh, um, one of my... Uh, great teachers, uh, Reb Zalman Shekta Shalomi, uh, began translating that not as Adonai, but Yah, like Hallelujah. Hallelujah means yeah. Hallelujah, praise Yah. So he translated it to Yah, that sense of openness, like Yah. Yeah, know, whole different energy. Rastafarians, <laughs> Yah, man. Yeah, man, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's drawing the same thing. Uh, Robert Arthur Waskow uh, renders those four letters <clears throat> as. As the, the the breath, sound of breath, and every living creature, plants and animals, are 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 breathing. You know, so it's like that. God is on the lips of all uh, in the moment of 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 our aliveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I have a sense that these days the sense of a Lord is no longer serving us and in democratic societies or societies we hope are democratic societies you know we don't really relate and, and really want to have some sense of a lord who's going to be the strong man and that strong man is going to keep us safe actually we want to take responsibility together for the welfare of our society yeah so 
and I, so I'm looking for a, a different way of, of naming God. And I'm influenced by um, the fact that these letters, Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, um, are the word to be in Hebrew in the past, the present, and the future. Hayah, Hoveh, Yehiyah. So it's somehow, it's a name that has to do with being that transcends time. Being that is throughout and transcending of time. And then when God says to Moses, God, Moses says, I want your name. What's your name? I mean, and that's a sense of, hey, if I'm going to go and confront the Pharaoh, I need some power here. I need to have a sense of who it is I am. And God says, um, well, my, my name is, I will be what I will be. I will be what I will be. You know, so from that, from those two things, I get the sense of, uh, I'd like to call them living presence. You know, that, that, that I translate Yudhevav as living presence in the sense of the, it's the aliveness of life in this moment. It's this beingness in this moment. It's, an, an, it's a alive presence. It's I will be what I will be. It's a sense of becoming. It's this energy of becoming. Yeah. Ah. <clears throat> oh, so even the tired, old, boring discussions do you think there's a God or not? Do you believe there's a God or not? The debates about whatever. Is there a living presence? Yes, that's right. That we can connect with? That's right. That we can be in the midst of? That's right. That we can find some truth, love, hope, peace, joy? That we know right. intimately? Yeah. Yeah. I love that then. Like your entire book, every time you would use God, <laughs> you use living presence. <laughs> yeah. It's the, I'm always interested in how languages are like naming systems, just one tweak. Yes. And all these, you see all, it's like turning the gym. The, the light refracts just slightly different, and you see so many new things through that one yes. change. Uh, my very first sermon as a rabbi, which was just around the corner from here at Temple Israel in Hollywood in 1981. 1981. <laughs> That's just a couple miles from here. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood. How old are you? 33. Oh, wow. Uh, 33. Yeah, I was a high school teacher before I, I went to rabbinical school. Um, so it was a second career for me. So my first sermon was, uh, I started out by saying, um, I want you all to know, I don't believe in God. <laughs> And I want you to know that in my reading of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition uh, and the Torah don't call upon us to believe in God. Uh, what they call upon us to do is to have a relationship to God. And that's what is at the center of my life. You know, for me, belief is a number of ideas that I as ascribe to. And any ideas about God are just so small compared to God's presence, rather it's a, a relationship, you know, and uh, it's knowing God. And that Hebrew, um, in the Bible, there's a word for knowing that means intimate knowing. Yes. Reminds me, like, you know, we... Sexual. Said, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to joke, um, you know, you say, you know, I know Sally, do you know her like Adam knew Eve? <laughs> you know, we used to joke that in, in Hebrew school. Yeah, but it's that sense of, of, of that intimate connection to the presence that's at the core of our life and it connects us to all that is and is moving through everything that it is. It's here and right now. And I, I, I like to think in some ways of, of God um, as a relationship, as a relationship. Yeah. In fact, there's a, 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 um, a lovely little uh, midrash on the first words of Genesis. The first words of Genesis are Bereshit bara 
Elohim et Hashemayim et Aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that little word et is a um, grammatical form in Hebrew that connects a subject to a direct object. So you could translate that, in the beginning, God created et. In other words, in the beginning, God created relationship. And I think that's really at, at, at the center of, of, of the book, the sense of, in some ways, we've been taught that we are individuals that are really freestanding individuals that can choose to be in relationship or not. We come into relationship, those relationships are good or they're not good. Uh, but the Torah understanding is, in the beginning is the relationship, that we're here for the sake of relationship. The relationship precedes our being here. Absolutely. Yeah, or Martin Buber talks about there's no freestanding I. There's either the, and it's I, not I and thou. There's I dash thou or I. We're either constant. We're constant by relationship. If I'm in an objective relationship, I'm, if I'm treating you as an object or something else, just simply as an object, it's an I it. You know, or if I'm in full relationship, it's I thou. So there's no I separate from the hyphen on the other end of it. We're always constituted by how are we entering in, in, into relationship. Yeah. By the way, I love it in quantum physics now, where they're talking about how the observation of the particle affects what the particle <laughs> yes, even does. Yes. So you have now particle and quantum theorists saying, actually, the observation affects the outcome. Everything is related yes. to everything else. Yes. At the very sort of front edge of science, we have the best minds telling us the whole thing's actually an interrelated relationship. That's right. And there's another aspect of that that I really appreciate, that sense of uncertainty. Yeah. Like the, the, the role of the king, the role of the imperial power, that Walter Bergman's real narrative is, what I can give you is certainty. <laughs> you know, we're mm -hmm. going to pin it down, we're going to do command and control, we know this baby, and it's under our control, we got it handled. And the prophetic is, uh, no, actually, uh, we're on a journey, folks. Uh, you know, a journey with God towards ever more intimate, interdependent, reciprocal relationship. And that journey is a wilderness journey. That's why the, the, the wilderness and the wilderness journey is at the core of the Torah. I mean, all the patriarchs, all the matriarchs, you know, Abraham and even Isaac goes on a journey and, and, and Jacob and Rebecca goes on a journey. I mean, they're, they're all, you know, journeying folk and God is always calling them out. And when God calls Abraham, into the wilderness, God says, you know, doesn't say go to Canaan, because go to the land that I will show you. You know, he doesn't even know where he's going. <laughs> he was, Leave your father's household, which is known, yeah, and go over there, unknown. Right. That's all you get right now. That's right. It's the, so the so the the, the torches and, and, and the prophets is like we are on an adventure together, folks. <laughs> you know, this and aliveness is in the adventure, and there's uncertainty and there's vulnerability in, in, in the adventure. So, in that way, I, I love the sense of quantum mechanics, is quantum physics, is you know, the, no, that 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 certainty is an illusion. You know, there, mm -hmm. there's this predictability and there's this probability. Probability, yeah. There's probability, but n not certainty. Um, two questions about the Exodus, which I love how you point out the. The dominant story for many about Exodus has been these people are enslaved. Um, whatever you're enslaved by, liberation to bring you into the promised land. Yeah. And you point out this very subtle, actually arriving in the promised land isn't actually what the whole thing is about. Mm -hmm. um, that if it's, well, when we get there, then you're missing all the things happening in we're headed that way. Yes. There's a direction, which is actually where the the mojo, the juice, the yes. life is. Yes. As opposed to 
this suspended state of, well, just when I arrive, then yes, uh, it'll be great. Yes, yeah. That, that's like a subtle, and yet it's actually the distinction mm-hmm. in many ways. Yeah, to me it's so powerful that the Torah ends with the people in the wilderness and Moses dying. I mean, it's so heartbreaking that Moses, who he led the people see, out... can yeah, can't enter. He can see, goes up onto the mountaintop. If he, this is a movie and the screen goes black... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And then the credits come in. Exactly. You turn to your friend and you're like, this movie sucks. <laughs> exactly. I spent two hours investing myself emotionally in these Exa- characters it, it, so that they would exactly get the entrance into the magical, mythical promised land. Yeah. And they camp on a mountain and see it yeah. and then die. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine. I, I, I love that image. And here they are journeying along, and that thing cut the black. <laughs> right, exactly. I want my money back. This yeah, Rotten it, Tomatoes score just plummeted. But it feeds my soul so uh, much, you know? And it's, it's so nothing that, that, that I've learned from Walter Brueggemann. And Walter Brueggemann talks about the importance of lamentations in the, mm-hmm. in, in the, in the Bible. You know, and in our way of moving forward into a, a, a more flourishing future, there's a lot of grieving that we need to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, gr- grieving all of the suffering that's going on, grieving things that we have to let go of in order to move into, in, 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 mm-hmm. into the future, grieving the, the, the consequence of the oppression that so many people have lived. And, you know, so that this idea that we get that we have to, gr- you know, Moses is, is grievous about this. He doesn't accept it easily. And the rabbis in the Midrash have Moses arguing and arguing and arguing with the guy, you know, after, one after another. Well, why, he should, why God should let Moses in? Um, <laughs> but I think it's just so powerful. No, it's about the journey. It's about the journey in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, you know, I should do a, I should do a Robcast episode about this sometime, but one of the greatest truths for me over the past few years has been there is no it and how often well you know when we make it when we get it right when right. we arrive at it right um then which just splits your heart into where you're at and then some thing down the road and yeah. now you're slightly miserable at like a low grade level i think in some ways We've allowed the commercial culture, the the, the culture uh, of commerce, yeah. to define who we are as human beings. And the commercial culture would define that what we're about is we're here to produce stuff and we're here to consume stuff. That's what a good yeah. life is. If you can yeah. produce a lot of stuff and if you can consume a lot of stuff, that's a good life. You know, and so there's a lot of it's in that, right? And the, the prophets and torturers are saying, no, no, no. Um, life is about being on this creative journey, which is animated by God's love. You know, that, that it's God's love that sends us out on this journey. And life is having the creativity to venture forth and to, to make meaning and make beauty and to create relationships in, in our lives. Yeah. Well, you have this great... Um Brian Swim has this line. I noticed you quoted him in your book. Yes. But he has this great line about how 20th and 21st century capitalism actually has an arc built into it. That the system, this free market, it actually is headed somewhere, which is that the goal that that life becomes the accumulation of dead objects. Uh-huh. <laughs> that that the system that we are in economically 
it actually it isn't just a plateau, but it it will lead somewhere. Where it will lead to is the highest form of living. Then yes, is the accumulation of dead objects. Yes, yes. And I what I love is how you keep pointing to the prophetic tradition. Uh, is calling us to be rescued from this. Yes. That yes. there's there's a dynamic interrelatedness of all of creation, which is actually where the life is. Yes. Everything talking to everything else. Yes. Listening to everything else. Yeah, and, and as you know, in the second half of the book, I bring these modern prophets and philosophers. Mm -hmm. So, so um, one who's just really helpful to me is Eric from, and he makes this distinction between faith and power and faith in life. And yeah. faith and power is, a good life is if I can be in control. What's all about is being in control and exercising power to have things be predictable and under control. And Fromm points out is that in some ways that serves what we would call our, our limbic system that wants to, nervous system that wants to, because, and in some ways our, our minds want to make things predictable. That's what they, they try and, and do. Um, but that that actually distances us from the aliveness of this moment and the flow of mm -hmm. life. And, and that, that faith in life is like being in a stream of relationship. It involves vulnerability and risk and unpredictability. From says we have to have the courage to take the risk to be in faith in life. But that's where the juice comes, being in the flow of, of it. I mean, if, 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 if I am exerting, it's such an odd thing. I'm always like, well, well, the dream would be if I could take my will and exert my will and make it happen. But that's, that's deadly. <laughs> that's the, yeah. Then it's only me and my will as opposed to the, right. the juiciness of, 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 of a relationship and taking the, taking the journey. Uh, can I read you something from your own book? Yeah. You had this uh, chapter 22, The Art of Stars and Stones. There are some sections here. You say, prophecy is a river. Prophecy is an energetic flow, an animating stream that threads through all that is. The nonverbal language of this flow is possibility. The possibility of bringing forth new forms of life. The possibility of taking the next step on a journey. The possibility of making another exodus. The prophetic stream speaks to all creation, addressing each form in its own language, exclaiming the vocabulary of potential. I'll be happy to do the audiobook, by the way. <laughs> I'm into this. <laughs> the, the, the prophetic stream speaks to all creation, addressing each form in its own language, exclaiming the vocabulary of potential, the potential to evolve, to expand in awareness, to grow in relationship. I just, I just want to cue the orchestra right there. I'm going to keep going, by the way. I have one more thing, and then I have some questions. In humans, the prophetic stream speaks most directly to the imaginative faculty. Human imagination, unfettered by settled norms, lifts a person above the limitations of the present moment and enables the envisioning of a radically alternative future. The sparks of such imaginative fire naturally arise in human awareness. Every human being has moments of imagining alternatives to the established circumstances of one's life. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this is the world created by the God 
whose name, if we could translate is, I will be what I will be. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a creation about becoming, you know, that God takes delight in becoming. And, and, and something that, that comes to me now to say about that is that, the, that what energizes becoming is diversity. You know, it, it's diverse forms of yes. life. It's just like how much richer it is if people from different yes. backgrounds and different experiences and different ages are in a conversation. Well, so too with the whole world, the fact that all of these different kinds of creation, as rabbis can see, we're in the middle of this incredible conversation. That, that's what feeds this dynamism of, 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 of becoming. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting when you think about uh, movies about dystopian um, settings where it's post-war, it's a post-apocalyptic. Everybody's always wearing the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The housing and the interiors of houses are always the same. Yeah, yeah. Drab colors and tones. Yes. When we want to portray what went wrong, we generally go to muted, lack of difference in color, texture, shape. Everybody's eating the same food. Yes. Um, that we, we, we intuitively know that the future is more. It's layers and intricacy and complexity of color, shape, person, interest, all that. Yes. It's like we know these things. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. You know, I, I love, part of what I love living in Santa Fe is hiking in the mountains. And I love when I'm hiking in the mountains, being surrounded by all these different life forms. It's like, like I feel like I'm in the middle of this rich conversation, you know? And to, to me, you know, the implications, if the world is a conversation, then what faithfulness looks like is listening and responding. Listening and responding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You ha say something more about this. See these pages here? I just scratched them <laughs> up like crazy. Yeah. You... Uh, I sound like I'm talking to a comedian. You do a bit here. Um, <laughs> you do, there's a whole section here, page 27, on sin. Mm -hmm. And you're working with this idea of, are, you know, do people sin? Do you... Um, but you do... Instead of attributing... This is page, uh, page 25. You write... Instead of attributing the iniquities of the society to the sinful nature of the people, these texts perceive the injustice and idolatry of Israelite society as a sign of a failure to learn. Mm -hmm. Sinful behavior is not innate to people's nature, but rather the product of bad learning. Yes. Yeah. And then you do this thing with Isaiah, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I, I've lived with this text from Isaiah forever, but never read it this way. Uh, the prophet Isaiah writes, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. In Isaiah's vision, the violence of warfare is a learned behavior and not an inherent flaw in human nature. It's a very, very rabbinic thing to say, but I think for a lot of people, even in sort of the the water stream of Western culture, no, it's because people are first and foremost bad. Yeah. For so many people, that has just been the dominant narrative. Yeah. Yeah, and I see that as the imperial lens on this sacred 
subversive, radical, anti-imperial text. You know, it's interesting that until the 20th century, all the translations, uh, in English at least, of the Hebrew Bible were by elites, and, and I imagine in, in other languages as well, that, that, that it's only in the 20th, especially the 21st century, that you have non-elites being able to translate. So it, it's all through an imperial lens that it's translated. It, the people it, in power are the ones translating the texts. Yes. So obviously the translations then are tilted towards keeping those systems in place. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, and every translation is an interpretation. Every translation is an interpretation. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So it serves the imperial power to say people are basically sinful, therefore they need to be kept in order or they're going to run amok. Therefore you need some sort of overweening dominant power to keep them in line so that they don't run amok. Therefore, you need this kind of royal establishment. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, we're happy to provide. <laughs> Which, by the way, <laughs> we're really good at yeah. and, and, and happy to provide. What's interesting to me, what that came clear is I took two texts from the Bible that are contemporary. One is the prophets and the other is Deuteronomy. That Deuteronomy is being... Uh, initially, the first level of Deuteronomy was uh, maybe near 620 something before the Common Era, and then it's worked on over the, over the generations. So it's coming into existence at the time that the prophets are doing their their ministry. Same time, they're facing the exact same existential crisis, which is that Israel started off to be an alternative to imperial power in imperial society, and it's become increasingly in the image of the great empires with, with all the hierarchy and all, all of the oppression, the same crisis. And so if you look at that, what are things that we find in Deuteronomy and the Prophets that did not appear in the earlier text, in, uh, in the earlier strains the, the, of the Bible, you know, the, um, the J strain and the E strain the, the, that are mainly in Genesis and, and Exodus and like, like that. So one is listening. In the Prophets in Deuteronomy, the word listen, like Deuteronomy, I think the word listening appears, you know, more than a score of times uh, to describe the relationship with God and Israel only once uh, in Genesis or Exodus. A second is, uh, a second is love. Love used yeah. to describe the relationship between God and Israel is used, I think, 16 times in Deuteronomy, many times in the Prophets, once in the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus. And the third is learning. You know, that Moses is, is talking, Moses is teaching the people, the people are learning. You know, Torah, you know, it comes through being to learn. So what I sense is in, in the face of the disintegration of Israelite society and in the, uh, in the shadow of these empires that are growing all around them in Egypt and Assyria and later Babylon, the people are seeing that what we need in our, our self-understanding society is listening, love, and learning, that, that a, a hierarchical society is a monologue. In fact, the, the problem with idolatry, we often think that the problem with idolatry is, well, they had, people had these stones that they were worshiping. Now, people were not so naive as to think a stone was a god. The problem with, with, with idolatry is it's a monologue. God doesn't talk. The, the idolatry is, I know the rules, I know how the game is played. If I offer these sacrifices and do this ritual, this right, then God will bless my fields. I don't have to be listening to God. I, I can do stuff that's going to in some ways control God. That, that idolatry is a monologue and, and not a dialogue. So in a way, I mean, and monologue is the coin of imperial power. So these texts wanted to lift up learning and dialogue as an alternative to uh, a fruitful alternative to um, imperial 
structures and ways of thinking. Uh, it's interesting. These people build a society. It becomes like a, there's a new pharaoh. It's a new kind of empire. So these slaves who needed to be liberated from their enslavement end up building a temple using slave labor to the god who rescues people from slavery. Their empire gets smashed to pieces. They end up miles from home in exile, hauled away by a foreign superpower. And it's there in the brokenness that they begin editing together these books about listening. That's right. It's like when, when you're on top, uh, why listen? That's right. There's nothing to hear. That's right. Uh, other than the sound of our own voices, we're fine. That's right. And then you lose that. You get humbled and broken. And suddenly your ears are like tilted towards yeah. any help you can get. Yes. And we were talking earlier, yeah. we were just kind of getting to know each other before we started talking about this book and this recording uh, and sharing our stories. In both of our stories, there's a sense of uh, there was a time in our lives when we were broken. Absolutely. And that, that and we, we shared with each other the joy of what we're, be, what we're doing now and, and mm -hmm. it, it came out of that of that brokenness, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I sometimes think that the great wisdom of the Hebrew scriptures is it's a text of a people who experienced defeat and were deeply broken and had to find a way forward out of that brokenness. And so much of history and so much of Instagram is told by the winners. Here's how, here's how good I look doing it. Here's how we conquered in the name of our gods. Yeah. And this funky collection of ancient poems and letters and prophetic writings is about losing, <laughs> not winning, being conquered, and yet in that, you begin listening and all these new imagination yes. bursts forth. Yeah. The living presence. Oh, I love that you use that. I, uh, I'm struck with how you write about they end up in exile in Babylon, this foreign superpower, this, this devastatingly brutal empire. But that empire is a static place. Yes. It's, uh, and that even if you're losing, even if you've lost and you're in exile, but you're listening, then you're, then you're in, so there's a dynamism there. Yes. Um, that is where the life is. Even if you're on the underside, miles from home, you're, you're still, the living presence you are still more tuned into then. It's like a great paradox at the heart of the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. just sort of sitting with that for a moment because you said it so beautifully and it's so alive. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I'm sure you've had this. The number of people I've met with over the years who they sit down with, across the table in a restaurant with you or something. I'm sure you've had this habit a hundred times. And the person says... I don't know. I don't know what means what anymore. I mean, I'm the the best at whatever, or I've this has gone really well for me, and now I don't know up or down, or and they're they're terrified and there's they're disrupted and they're deconstructing everything, and you're just sitting there smiling, going, <laughs> "You have you're in such a good place," and I don't know how I'm gonna make it, and I don't know what people are gonna think, and you're smiling, thinking, "Oh, you're fine." You know, I, I'm deeply blessed that I... I <laughs> you know get, what I mean? I, oh, you're fine. <laughs> I, I, I totally, I'm, I'm deeply blessed that I get to sit with people for spiritual direction. 
And people often come to me in that kind of place. Yeah. And uh, basically, I just listen really well. And, and while I'm listening, I'm, I'm tuning in to my sense of that living presence in them and their life force. Like I'm being present to that life force in them. And I've seen over time just phenomenal things happen just attending to that and listening mm-hmm. to that and honoring that and trusting that. Phenomenal growth and learning, so inspiring. And, yeah. Well, you do something I had never... Uh, I had seen a number of the parable parallels, but I had not seen your use... You point out that Exodus, the liberation from enslavement, um, the divine brings forth, the living present brings forth, is the same language used in the creation poem Yes. to speak of creation bringing forth. Yes. That the, the, the world as we know it, all of its biodiversity and sunsets and waves and all of trees and is brought for its potential that is realized. Yes. It's brought forth out of something. Yes. Particles bond with particles and forms atoms, atoms bond with atoms, and that brings us molecules, molecules. It's an endless process of bringing forth. Yeah, it's an endless process. And that when then we are trapped, enslaved by whatever it is, addiction, despair, whatever, and we're set free, that the same thing then that is happening within us has yes. been happening in creation for billions of years. Yes, same I, I, animating energy. Yes, living presence. I I love it so much that it, in the first chapter of Genesis, the fifth day of creation, God literally the, the Hebrew word is the same. God exoduses. Yes. God brings forth. It's exact same word as when the people leave Egypt. God exodus yeah. animals from the earth. And what an outrageous statement. I mean, these are agricultural people. They know that animals didn't pop out of the earth. (laughs) You know, and specifically, God did not place little cows or antelopes (laughs) on the surface of the earth. Rather, God released the potential of the earth, you know, of soil to exodus, to bring forth, to bring forth that, you know, the earth has a potential to be an antelope and to be a lion (laughs) and to be a sequoia tree. You know, and, and so... That process of bringing, and, and you know, I wrote this book in large part because I wanted to provide people with hope, and I think the sense of that there is deep within creation itself, yes. what I would call the love of the living presence, which is this animating, creative, and it's present in everything, you know, and uh, you know, and so ultimately, empires are coming down for sure because they stand in the way of the unfolding of of creation and, and that we have creation as our deep ally and I, I also think for me that you know I, I grew up I think I grew up the worldview I was given was that in some ways we are living on a big rock floating in cold space and I felt earlier this is really what drew me to Judaism to the rabbinate I, I, my soul felt really desiccated and devastated in some ways, but it was so, mm-hmm. so, you know, and, and I really wanting some way to feel connected to all that is. So the sense that all of creation is on a liberation journey. I mean, we're all allies in this journey. It's not we humans on this dead planet, but the planet itself is on. I mean, look around us, you know, it's springtime now, you know, like, whoa, the journey is moving forward. I find that um, really healing for my soul. 
Absolutely. You think about uh, ancestors who are surrounded by creation and it's bursting forth in its difference and diversity and seasons. So whatever is happening within you, whatever, how am I going to get out of this jam? How am I going to fix this problem? How am I going to solve that? You're surrounded in living color every day with a creation that seems to endlessly find new ways to be. Yes. And now we have strip malls. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You think about the, the modern man or woman surrounded by so much soulless deadness. No wonder we get bound up. Mm. And no wonder for so many of us, the, the, uh, the, so much of a source of life is the continual return to physical creation. It's like there's a giant yeah. metaphor over and over to us. Hey, yeah. there's a way out of it. Whatever, there's a way out of this. Imagination is not a foreign idea. Yeah. It's baked into the fabric of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I love how you point that out. Oh, it's so well done. My goodness. Okay, I have... Uh, you, will you come back at some point? I would love to. And we'll do another one of these? Yeah, absolutely, I'd love to. <laughs> I was going to call it a jam session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, the book. Uh, this has been so what I knew it would be. (laughs) The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets, subtitle Then and Now. Uh, So my Robcast friends, um, I'm telling you this book, you'll, I don't even, yeah, you you got it right from the past hour. You get what I'm about to say. Anyway, where can people find you or get a hold of you? Do you go around and speak at places and sit with people? Yeah. Can people come see you? Yeah, absolutely. How does that work? How do they get a hold of you? um, uh, my website, rabbinahum.com, R-A-B-B-I-N-A-H-U-M.com. On that, uh, there's information about the book and where people can buy the book, a little bit more about the book and, and about me. Uh, I've got a page that has events that I'm doing in, in, in the coming year, and they can check that out and show up for some of those events. Uh, people can invite me to come to their community. Um, Fabulous. Yeah, all of that. Well, I'm already inviting you back, and we'll do another one of these. Cool. Uh, I love it. And next time, I want to uh, talk about Cain and Abel, because the thing you do on that, I'm still recovering. <laughs> 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 Maybe we'll start there next time. Okay. But uh, thank you so much for coming by the house. Thank you so much. I really friends. appreciate it's it. It's been a joy. I, I, I feel like we could be friends. Like I, I, I got a friend today. I'd love that. Okay, good. Accepted. Let's do this. Absolutely. Let's let's do this. Grace and peace, everyone. Yes. Amen.